Welcome to season three of Instant Coffee. I'm Nadine Almanasfi. And I'm Sima Shehab. And this latest season is an exploration of technology and its developments in the region. Beyond the emergence of ChatGPT and Sophia the Robot, we wanted to speak with people who are applying, adapting, and reimagining technology in their fields. We will be exposed to medieval Islamic hospitals, failed Gulf techno cities, emerging Iraqi fintech startups, inclusive artificial intelligence, and much more. In this first episode, we start by taking a look at the state of digital rights in the region. We all know that we should have access to an open and free internet, that we should be afforded the right to privacy and the right to freedom of expression online. But we also know that digital ethics and the laws that should be protecting these rights are not so robust, and digital incursions take place not only in MENA, but globally. Our main guest, Dr. Nakima Staffelbauer, takes us through some of the major points of concern she's encountered in her decades-long work as a tech executive, tech investor, and digital rights advocate. Her more global analysis will be complemented by specific case studies from the region, as we will also hear from Qasim Neja and Marwa Fatafta of Access Now, a digital rights advocacy group. Qasim and Marwa discuss internet blackouts, state suppression, and big tech collusion on the ground in Tunisia, Sudan, and Palestine. Hi, Nakima. Can you start by introducing yourself and tell us a bit more about your tech background? You also started your research looking at the MENA region, which is very interesting. Can you expand on this a bit more? I'm Nakima Steffelbauer. I am a technology executive, a tech investor, and a digital rights advocate with a focus on AI and transparency of artificial intelligence systems for marginalized communities. I have worked in digital technology in the education, e-learning, enterprise resource planning, insurance, uh, social media messaging areas since 2000. Prior to moving into e-learning, I worked in academia as a researcher. I was specifically focused on North Africa and Middle Eastern uh, migration trends, informal economy, informal labor, and black market trade. Nakima also set up the NGO Frauenloop in Berlin, which is focused on empowering women from refugee, migrant, and other backgrounds to know more about how digitization is changing traditional industries, equipping them with access to technological knowledge and skills. Thanks for that intro, Nakima. Moving on, if we look at what's happening in MENA amongst your contacts in the region, What kind of obstacles do you see playing out in relation to access to technological opportunities and awareness of digital rights? Would you say they're different to the concerns facing the students at Frauenloop or the issues we face in Europe, for example? I think it's the same challenge that you find in a lot of Western contexts, actually, with regard to women specifically, but with regard to technology opportunities, it's the challenge of the right opportunities and getting access to them once you've trained in a particular field. So let's take software engineering, computer engineering. You know, there are tons of people studying computer engineering all over Egypt at the major universities. The problem is accessing opportunities that you can grow with, that you can rely on is difficult. And it's one of the the main drivers of people looking to move to other countries and and escape from the region in order to pursue more permanent opportunities in the digital sphere. Also, you know, if you look at Sudan, if you look at Tunisia, if you look at places where we've recently seen a lot more people applying for asylum, applying for work abroad, 
you know, if you have a constant threat of military unrest, of government clampdowns, of being cut off from the internet entirely, it makes a lot of sense to consider alternatives to pursuing a long-term career where you are. This is really a driving force in terms of how you visualize upskilling yourself and being successful. It usually, if you don't have connections locally that can help you get into the right kinds of international technology companies, you want to at least be in a sector where you're going to have some oversight, some control over what you're paid and how regularly you're paid and that you're going to be able to build a longer term career. You know, it's not to be overlooked the fact that everybody has access to the same internet. So when we're all on Instagram and we're following stories about, you know, Amazon paying its engineers 300,000 as a minimum salary, everybody in the world is seeing that and wondering why they don't have access or how they can get access. And maybe if a move to one of the regions where these large salaries are more typical is possible, maybe it's worth risking quite a lot to, you know, to get yourself into a position to have access to those opportunities. So a lot of what I think animates people who are um, based in Middle Eastern contexts is a desire to participate in the same way as they're seeing Western, North American, Europeans participating in this digital economy and this digital um, universe of you know, metaverse and blockchain and VR and uh, AI and all of these um, advancements that might feel at times like they're either going to be restricted because you don't have the right connection socially and educationally at home, or they might be controlled and unduly influenced by the state. And can we talk a bit more about that aspect, about how the state is shrinking online space? I mean, you can just look at Turkey. It's it's a very good example of how, you know, the government has made very clear its desire to remain at the center of all digital communication that happens within the country, especially post-coup, which we many of us watched live, you know, happening on Twitter. I think it it's not to be underestimated the sensitivity that people have to growing up in a country where, you know, your government does not allow you to get online without IP addresses being uh, available, being clearly delineated. Public space, Wi-Fi access is the same. You need to identify yourself in a way that the government can find you if they want to. Um, this is not the same internet as what was sold to many of us you know, decades ago as surfing anonymously, meeting people, connecting all over the world. This is a different experience. It's, sa- it's similar, I think, um, in most countries, Jordan, certainly Palestine, you know, Syria, Sudan, Lebanon, everyone is aware that even if you don't have a centralized and a strong internet strongman, you know, controlling um, traffic, you can never be sure whether some agency, some entity is not policing your activities online, as we've learned from various documentary exposés, um, your tweets on the, you know, X platform, anything that you do that is not both virtual private network protected and probably anonymized, you can be at risk. So it's not just the feeling of being less free to express yourself without a pseudonym and, you know, elaborate anonymization procedures when you're at home. It's also the feeling that 
if you have any additional concerns, like you are politically active, you are a member of an LGBTQ community, you identify with any areas that might be under special scrutiny, you know, the whole digital landscape is much less safe for you. As well as shrinking space, states in the region have also carried out disruptive and total internet shutdowns at times. Qasim Najjar, MENA campaigner at Access Now, is involved in the global campaign called Keep It On, working against internet shutdowns. A lot of countries, you know, use internet shutdowns as a tool in order to silence critics, to suppress a lot of people on the ground, but also to hide a lot of crimes and atrocities that unfortunately happen. But maybe one thing that is specific to the Middle East and North Africa region is a lot of internet shutdowns during exams. So for some countries, it could be like a complete blocking and shutting down the internet in specific areas. But in other countries, it could be blocking of some communication apps and some social media messaging apps in order to, you know, again, the the excuse and the argument that these governments present is to, you know, prevent cheating. A lot of people think that shutting down the internet during exams is not really done in the sense that it's going to completely stop cheating, but it is a way to even more control the online space. It's a tool that, that a lot of governments use as an excuse, but Again, there's no statistics that back up that, you know, internet shutdowns during exams have been effective in preventing cheating. Internet shutdowns is just one part of it. But then again, when you see that there's a lot of issues when it comes to accessibility, when it comes to connectivity, uh, when it comes also to legislation, when it comes to trying to control the online space, whether through like cybercrime legislation or laws and regulations that try to control the online space. And, you know, we've seen different examples of how an open internet space can help and can usher more opportunities for young people when it comes to education, when it comes to businesses. If you take the example of Tunisia, you know, during the era of Ben Ali, you know, it was it was a rampant censorship. YouTube and other websites were blocked for years. A lot of young people were frustrated. But then again, at that time, not a lot of people were very conscious about VPNs, virtual private networks and around, you know, tools that try to circumvent these kind of restrictions and measures. Some people had to take risks and use VPNs to, in order for them to get news and see what was really happening. There was a lot of frustration among the youth, which made Ben Ali promise the removal of these restrictions in his final days of power. And then when you see the situation now, it's very different in the sense that an open internet in the country has presented more opportunities, jobs, tools for learning, and overall it increased the reliance on the internet for work and education. It is important for governments in the region to understand when you control that, it is, of course, going to gonna make a lot of people think, think twice about the decision, whether they, whether they stay in their countries, whether they open businesses in their countries or not, versus maybe move into another country that they're going to find a more welcoming space and a better space where they can function and when they can operate or do their work and studies without these kind of restrictions that sometimes can, you know, can be very costly on their lives. And we wanted to talk to you about Sudan. We've seen a lot of comments on the lack of social media output in relation to, say, for example, Palestine, due to the heavy control of the internet in the country. Can you speak to the situation at all? Sudan is, you know, unfortunately, it's one of the countries that we have documented and that we've seen a lot of cases of internet shutdowns. We see that internet shutdowns have unfortunately been used as a restrictive tool during political transitions and times of, you know, upheavals during the past few years in the country. Uh, We see that usually amid protests and street demonstrations, 
you know, the different military regimes uh, have resorted to cut enough internet access multiple times and for extended periods as well. Unfortunately, their internet shutdown has been used as a cover-up for, you know, some human rights violations and atrocities that have taken place on the ground. And more often than once, unfortunately, we come across graphic reports of violence that emerge whenever the internet is restored. By shutting down the internet, you know, this is usually a tool or something that is used in order to make political organizing and the exchange of information about protests, needs, and people involved, it makes it a bit more complicated. There was this NGO that is called the Sudanese Consumer Protection Society that has advocated in the past against internet shutdowns, and it managed to take the government to court and the court ruled in its favor, and then it ordered the restoration of internet services in the country. So this was a big victory for the people in Sudan, but also across the region. And this triumph, you know, unfortunately, it didn't mark the end of, uh, of shutdowns. And this was one of the cases where we've seen government response and more government crackdown, because just one year later, we've heard from the head of the, of the Sudanese Consumer Protection Society that the organization's permit was revoked by the government. So, you know, this was a significant blow to the efforts of internet defenders. And I feel that it kind of sent a message to activists and lawyers, not just in Sudan, but also across uh, other countries in the region that, you know, challenging the government when it comes to internet shutdown or when it comes to these restrictive measures that they use can lead to such decisions, can lead to such actions, and can sometimes uh, lead to more crackdown. While internet shutdowns and control of the digital sphere have broader implications on the general public, we asked Nakima more about the specific ways marginalised groups are affected. It is useful to know how women, for example, can be empowered to gain knowledge and skills in tech, but we wanted to dig a bit deeper. We wanted to find out how Nakima understands new advances in digital technologies as suppressive, and how exactly they're moving in more discriminatory directions. From from my perspective, there's no difference between how women in the region and women in you know New York or Berlin are struggling to take control of their own narratives online because we're all up against the same challenges, which is an increasingly automated set of technologies being deployed on the internet that seek to categorize, segregate, and replicate the same types of stimuli for users, clients, whatever you want to call them, people who might eventually be monetized, data might be monetized. So, you know, it's the same challenge to cover your tracks, not be tracked everywhere you go online by cookies. Try not to upload pictures of your face or your family that can then be scraped and incorporated into databases and algorithms that are meant to predict you know not what. This is the same challenge that we all are facing. You know, I gave a recent workshop to Frauenloop students and mentors in Berlin. That's what it was about. It was called exercising your GDPR rights, but it was actually about protecting yourself online which everybody needs to learn how to do. You know, it was about learning how to cloak and mask your images. It was about searching the open source databases that exist to see whether or not your name, your likeness has been used in training data sets, the Lion training data set in particular released by Facebook, so that you can get an understanding of what might be associated with your name, your likeness, 
if you're artistic, you know, your artistic output, all of these things are freely available. None of them have a cost, but nobody knows about it. And, you know, I'm trying to um, think about how I would feel if I were sitting in any Middle Eastern country and I were seeing the same narrative that we see in the West, which is, you know, men run technology, white men specifically are the geniuses and the visionaries behind every tech platform and every tech company and trying to make sense of how to navigate that environment when the times that you hear women mentioned, it's usually about deep fakes, non-consensual porn, you know, all kinds of things that suggest not only a lack of control, but a constant need for vigilance and care that maybe men don't have, maybe, you know, non-minoritized people don't have. So I think, you know, what I hope for the future for people in the Middle East in general is a recognition of you know, the very neo-colonial nature of the internet and the data that's being produced and being replicated and by whom, um, and understanding that there are ways and tools without getting too technical to protect yourself online and to maintain your privacy as a, as a human being, because that should be a tenet of your digital experience, uh, the right to privacy, and an understanding that there are initiatives siloed and in different parts of the world, but there are initiatives underway. If you look under decolonizing, you focus on the decolonizing label where people are trying to reclaim their language online, their images, and their right to sort of exist and to define for themselves how and what is going to be presented when you Google Arab or, you know, Muslim or, you know, whatever the specific a subset you belong to is online. And you should be able to do that because nobody should have the experience that many of us got familiar with, with Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression, where you Google black woman, black girl, and you get porn, you know, where you get incredibly insulting imagery that does not represent your family, <laughs> yourself, you know, your elders be nice if you're going to wholesale switch everyone to using certain kinds of technologies over others, at least shouldn't they work for, you know, vast majorities of the country, of the populations that potentially you want to monetize into customers? And the fact that you still have facial recognition technologies, you still have natural language processing applications that fail to recognize dark-skinned people that fail to recognize accents outside of a very narrow band of English, usually. What does that mean for all of us who grew up speaking accented English or other languages who, who might speak dialect, typically, with their families and you know their elders? What happens to all of this exchange and all of this culture and lived experience when we move towards an internet that's exclusively delivered by, you know, large multinational US or UK companies. Multinational companies and the rise of big tech play an important role in how we understand these standardization drives in artificial intelligence and new technologies. In addition to these concerns, increased interest by states in collaborating with information technology companies raises concerns for freedom of expression and the right to privacy. Again, we wanted to find out more about what this kind of collaboration looks like on the ground. 
Marwa Fatafta, MENA Policy and Advocacy Director at Access Now, spoke to us about how social media monitoring and the role of tech companies plays out in Palestine, both before and during the latest violence since October 7th, 2023. Right now, it's a, it's a very scary time for freedom of expression in, in Palestine. Until 2015, the Israeli authority started accusing social media platforms for being hub for terrorism and for radicalizing Palestinian youth and started opening these kind of backdoor deals with social media companies to remove content. Back then, in 2016, the Israeli authorities established the so-called cyber unit, which is a unit within the attorney general's office that monitors and reports content um, that, according to them, of course, incites the violence or encourages terrorism to social media platforms for them to, to remove. Um, they've also deployed pretty draconian technologies such as you know predictive policing tools that come through social media content and flags individuals and by individuals, I mean Palestinians, because that's the target of such technologies that may, may commit an attack in the future. And since 2015, we've seen this wave of hundreds of Palestinians, especially teenagers or um, young people, been arrested for their social media posts or social media activity. You know, for example, the, the system was made to recognize if uh, people change their profile pictures, which is seen as an indication that the, this person is about to commit an attack and they want to have a nice photo. So once they're martyred, that's the photo is shared among their family and uh, in the press. So really twisted logic into how the Israeli authorities weaponize different tools and new technologies in order to monitor what Palestinians are saying and clamp down on that. Pretty much since I started working on digital rights in, in Palestine in 2015, we see this systematic pattern of uh, censoring Palestinian voices and suppressing their narratives by social media companies and tech platforms in general. Whenever there is an escalation in violence on the ground, we see matched to that an escalation of censorship and digital repression. And so... Uh, right now, since October 7th, we've seen how platforms, and particularly Meta, and um, although Meta says that they're not implementing any type of content moderation actions that suppresses or demotes Palestine-related content, user experiences are, they tell a different story. I mean, and there are hundreds of people who said, I, since I started posting about Palestine, my reach is, has been reduced. And then also we've seen some new measures. Um, for example, for uh, popular Palestinian accounts on Instagram that have been active since October 7th, people who go to their page or want to follow them, they get this prompt from Instagram saying, are you sure you want to follow this account? It has violated our community standards for a number of times, or they have been sharing disinformation. We have been in contact with the platforms. We have been raising and escalating those cases as they arise. Um, we have been also challenging the platforms and, and their public messaging, especially when we saw the some egregious, really like egregious embodiment of the discrimination and the racism inherent in these content moderation systems and policies. Example being when Instagram's auto-translation translated the bios of users who had the Palestinian flag and 
words like alhamdulillah into Palestinian terrorists are fighting for their freedom. In Instagram, I mean, Meta came up and said, sorry, that was a that was an error in our in our system, which has always been their standard line that the systematic censorship we see and we document over the years and not just since the start of 20 of October uh, 7th is a matter of technical glitch and technical errors. And we launched this collective campaign calling on Meta to stop silencing Palestine and uh, demanding that they really overhaul their discriminatory and biased content moderation system that again and again censors not only Palestinians, but also anyone who speaks up on Palestine, generally speaking, marginalized communities in uh, in Syria, in Yemen, in uh, Ethiopia, in Myanmar, populations that are enduring horrific types of violence uh, and they need social media to share their realities and to get attention when there is none from global media. And we see that, unfortunately, those types of communities who are most at risk are not prioritized, their safety is not prioritized, their freedom of expression is not prioritized. And with that in mind, how has Israeli control of the internet and access to internet technologies changed during the current violence? I look at the genocide right now in Gaza. It's a humanitarian catastrophe of an unspeakable scale. There is ongoing internet shutdowns and disruptions since October 7th. We have been following closely connectivity status. Since the start of the war, there's been 10 complete communications blackouts. Since October, we saw that the Israeli authorities have been bombarding telecommunications infrastructure and internet service providers. The connectivity in Gaza plummeted by 80% and the majority of internet service providers have not been working. I think the last time we checked uh, as of January 9th, 12 of the 19 internet service providers in Gaza are not working, are shut down, either because they their infrastructure has been destroyed and damaged because of the heavy bombardment or because they ran out of fuel because of the complete siege levied on Gaza by the Israeli authorities or because Israel simply is toying with the internet. At the end of the day, they have full control over the Palestinian infrastructure, uh, all the gateways and, and cables that connect Gaza with the rest of the world run through Israel. And the Israelis have been also quite open and clear about that. I mean, the Ministry of Communication had said in the beginning of the war that they are considering internet shutdowns in the Gaza Strip in order to hinder people from communicating with each other and also to hide the trails of, of their crimes. During political upheaval, big tech's responses to upholding freedom of expression have been inconsistent. But what options are there for meaningful change? We asked Nakima where her thinking lies for the future and how these recommendations that she makes go down in her conversations and presentations that she delivers to tech companies, policymakers and other interested groups. How do people respond? Luckily, I've gotten really good responses from people in policy positions and policymakers tend to be among the most outraged about how the abuses in North America, the abuses that are cropping up more and more in the UK, how they stopped within Europe. But I think that what about if you're not in Europe? What about if you're sitting in Egypt, if you're sitting in you know Morocco and one of these countries where the governments seem incredibly eager to get their hands on the latest 
artificial intelligence algorithms so that they can pilot, you know, unmanned warfare drones so that they can use the latest uh, screening and crawling algorithms to find out where all of the dissenters are within their own countries. You may not be able to get to the right people with information um, at the right times. And it's really important to do that because as I said, the message is the same from my perspective everywhere. You are entitled to use the internet for what it was built for, which is to connect with people in different circumstances, in different parts of the world, in different levels, without barriers. And you are meant to be able to, I think, navigate with some degree of security that you know your, your words, your images, are not going to be used against you. And, and that's what it really becomes when we're talking about investigating how algorithmic recommendations and predictions can work against and tell lies about the people, the communities, the populations that are being referenced. I think that that's the main, the main challenge is getting that message out ahead of all of the technology boosters who are saying that these are edge cases, these are minor tweaks need to be fixed. And then we can go back to full-time reliance on and hyping of these uh, technologies as being the best way forward. It would be really worth having um, conversations with Black and AI, uh, which is a machine learning organization, global organization, co-founded or founded by Timnit Gebru. Deep Learning in Daba, which last year was held in Tunisia. These are the kinds of places and spaces where technologists who are familiar with the technology, who understand the challenges of contributing to open source networks from the global South, can speak to what it means to be able to get access to their peers in different parts of the world without the mediation of a big tech company that wants to police what is said and what is focused on. Thank you so much for listening to Instant Coffee, a podcast brought to you by the LSC Middle East Center. Join us every other Tuesday for a new episode. To find out more about Nakima's work, as well as the advocacy campaigns of Access Now, follow the links in the podcast description.